And with us now is Peter Dunn. Peter, good afternoon. Hello, Tim. Lots to talk about. Uh, let's begin with the government putting forward a motion on Wednesday, this Wednesday, to declare a climate emergency. Some people have poo-pooed this as being mere words. Others say it's important to have symbolic gestures like this. What's your take? Well, I think it's a combination of both. You've got you know, bold gestures are good, provided they're backed up by solid action. And I think it's ironic that at the very time we're contemplating putting forward this motion about a climate emergency in New Zealand, there's an international conference being planned for later in the year, and New Zealand may be excluded from it as not having done enough uh, in climate change policy. So I think if you're going to have the, the, the sort of uh, the, um, the trappings, if you like, of, uh, of declaring an emergency through a resolution in Parliament, you've got to back it up with the actions. I agree. And, and it's about being on the right side of history, too, that, that we are not the first country to do this. Indeed, we're lagging behind Canada and France, but also Britain have done this as well, and presumably they've done it under Conservative governments. Yes. Uh, look, I, I've, as I say, I think you know, there's, there, there's good reason to actually make the declaration. I don't have a problem with that. But you do need to do a bit more than that. And I think we have, we, we've talked a lot over the last few years uh, but there haven't been too many decisive actions taken. We passed the legislation a couple of years ago, but I don't think anyone's really noticed any impact from that. And yet that was supposed to be groundbreaking. So I think this is very much the, the moment to actually seize the initiative and back the words with some actions. Let's have a little word about the Maori Party walkout. So Rawiri Waititi and Debbie Narewa-Packer, the co-leaders, they walked out of Parliament's first session on Thursday. And there's just a slight whiff of this, and correct me if I'm being cynical, there's a slight whiff of this of it being staged. What do you think? Oh, I think it was. I think it's a very interesting point, though. I think the Speaker's absolutely right that under the standing orders, you know, they, they, they get one chance at making a maiden statement, and, and that's it. But the problem is the situation we've got is one that the standing orders never contemplated. They say that leaders can speak in debates like the address and reply. Fair enough but also that new members can make a maiden statement. They don't envisage a new member being a party leader, and I think that's the problem here. So the Māori Party says, well, look, we're quite happy to make our maiden statements next week or whenever it is, but we also wanted to speak on the opening day as leaders. And the Speaker, of course, reverts to the rules and says, we can't have it both ways, and hence the walkout. Now, I think the Māori Party knew that. I think that they um, have... It has been pretty well stage-managed. I think it's a sign of how they're going to operate in this parliament. But I think at the bottom of it all, there's also a bit of a point here about this unusual situation where two new MPs who are party leaders, co-party leaders, don't get to make a statement uh, in quite the way that other party leaders do. And I think perhaps the Standing Orders Committee needs just to have a look at that type of situation. I did wonder, though, whether some of the words that came from Waititi's mouth uh, didn't quite fit that given the Labour Party is the most diverse caucus that we've really ever seen. And so when he was talking about Pākehā-led majority parties, that, that I just wonder whether that, that's not necessarily going to bring more people with him. No, but don't forget that the Māori Party is in this unusual position that it can play to a very particular and specific constituency like no other. Uh, and if it can secure a significant proportion of the Māori vote, then it secures its long-term future. So I think what you're going to see from them uh, over the next uh, three years is nothing too nuanced but a pretty blunt appeal to that Māori sentimentalism and that Māori base of support secure their future. And it's good politics for them and good on them for doing it. But the, the, the um, if you like, the Pakiha system is going to have to figure out a way of coping. And 
more it behaves in the way that it did during the week, even though might was on its, on its side, might and right were both on its side, the more it can be portrayed as, you know, there they are ganging up on us again. So it's going to be a very interesting debate to see how it unfolds. My party's got to be careful it doesn't go too far out on a limb. But if it sort of plays that we're just here to represent our people and we can't get a fair go line, then I think it will score big with Maori voters. One of the things which stood out from the first day in Parliament was the maiden speech of Ibrahim Omer, who is a refugee who came from Eritrea. And the speech, and I'm reading a transcript of it, is, is quite something. This has gone viral. And trying to figure out why it's resonated with so many people, and I think the story that he's got of being a former refugee, um, but also somebody who says he's bursting with pride as a Kiwi who loves Aotearoa in New Zealand, it's, it's really something. Why do you think that resonated? Oh, look, I think this is a wonderful story. He's someone who came from, from a, a war-ravaged country. He came here with nothing. He started out as a cleaner. He then cleaned the lecture rooms that he became a student in, became a graduate, got involved in politics and in the community in New Zealand. And here he is as a member of parliament leading off the address and reply debate. It's a, it's a fairy tale story, but it's a story of determination, commitment. And I think also it sends a message about, you know, when New Zealand talks about being the land of opportunity, for some, that truly is the case, and that's the that's the highlight and the sort of the positive message of it. So it was a great start. Of course, uh, having made a great start, the eyes now will be on him to continue to deliver during the balance of this parliamentary term. I think the other thing that I liked about it is that he he didn't just paint a kind of a slightly cliched picture of life in a war-torn nation. In fact, he, he gave details about when Eritrea was peaceful, when Muslims and Christians lived side by side, and, and that it wasn't until that there was a change in government and, and the whole thing came crashing down and it became so dangerous that they had to flee that, that it became so vastly different from the place that he grew up. And, and kind of fleshing those details out, yeah. I think, is important. Yeah, and I think for a lot of New Zealanders who would have only the vaguest notions of the whole Eritrean situation, that information was vital. It's a good uh, explainer as to who he is, but it's also part of, the, if you like, his backstory. And I think it will equip him, uh, it already has done, but will continue to equip him very well for the stresses and strains of the parliamentary role. As I say, the, the problem he will confront, though, is now having made such an impressive start, the weight of expectation will be upon him. And uh, I guess he'll have to learn to cope with that. But um, look, if you wanted to see a celebration of New Zealand, modern, diverse, tolerant, culturally aware New Zealand, I mean, that speech the other day was it. A couple of quick other things that people have been talking about during the week politically. Uh, One is whether or not the government should intervene with house prices out of control and whether or not they can. I think the question is more whether they can. I mean, the government's the ultimate authority. It's got the the power to intervene. The question is what it can do. I think there are a few things it can do. I think it, it, it needs to uh, much more aggressively up not just the state house building program, but it's really got to encourage the private sector much more to build those first residential homes for people. I think it probably needs to look at something like a home ownership scheme um, like we used to have for first home buyers. I think that um, there's got to be a much more aggressive policy to replace uh, state houses as they are sold on a rent-to-buy basis, as they sold to, to um, their tenants then they've got to be replaced. I think there are a number of things that the government can do. Maybe even look at um, tax relief uh, for mortgage repayments for first homes. So all of that to assist people into homes. I think on the, on the supply side, it's really working with councils and uh, developers to make sure that more houses are being built and more rapidly built. All right, before I let you go, uh, what did you make of the debate about ties in Parliament? Because you were a bow tie wearer, as most people know. 
Should yes. it be compulsory or should that be relaxed a little bit? I think in this day and age, probably relaxed a little bit. I wouldn't want to see it abolished completely. I think that, uh, you know, for some people feel much more comfortable wearing a tie than, than others. Others don't. But I think, you know, at the same time, Parliament has to be a place of respect and dress standards are part of that. I note that over the years, the, the dress standard for women has become much more relaxed than that for men. And I think that's a little bit of a problem too. I mean, women can sort of rock up the parliament in almost tracksuits. Men can't, for instance. So I think there's a Who's bit in of the tracksuit? Who, who's wearing the tracksuit? Well, track I've seen suit? it over the years, particularly really? if, the, if the house is having a late night. A smart sort of tracksuit. Um, <laughs> I've seen women MPs turn up in that because it's more comfortable. Now, you know, fair enough, but men are still stuck in suits. So there's a bit of balance here, but at the same time, get a solution that fits the mood of the time and uh, doesn't throw all of tradition out the window. All right, thank you very much. It's former United Future leader Peter Dunn, man who brought in extended daylight saving and political commentator now. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Thanks, Tim. Cheers.